Welcome to Beethoven was a rock star. In this podcast, we are exploring the limits between music styles and why we created so many labels to define them. My name is Alexandra Rietje, I'm the conductor of Night of the Proms and the music director of the Henderson Symphony Orchestra. I'll be interviewing iconic figures from both classical and pop music to find where the boundaries are and break through them. This first episode, I wanted to give you a historical approach and find out what really happened. Was there always a division between classical and pop music? If yes, was it as extreme as the one we have now? To help me with that, I invited the music historian Christopher Gibbs. He's the author of Life of Schubert and the co-author of the Oxford History of Western Music. We also talked about who were the first rock stars, the touring life, who started with the rules of clapping and not clapping in so many fascinating subjects around music history. So let's get started. Professor Gibbs, <laughs> I haven't called you like that forever, right? Ten years ago. Yes, <laughs> but now I'm Christopher. Okay, Christopher. <laughs> well, thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for being here and for sharing with us your your knowledge. And um, you know, I, I was always a fan since I came to Bard, and going to your classes were like my favorites, together with Farberman, of course. And I couldn't have anyone better to to talk about that than than you. So, shall we? Yes. Classical and pop. There was always a division, or that was something that came over time. And if there was not a division, what was the impetus to rise of the pop music? So I think there's a very, very long history to this that uh, what we think about now in the 21st century and what really emerged more familiarly to us in the 20th century has a history that goes back many, many centuries, just called by different names and in different contexts, of course. One thing we could say about music, which is different than thinking about uh, the art of the past, the visual arts of the past, the literature of the past, such that we look at uh, Greek ancient uh, vases and architecture, or we read the plays of ancient Greece. Music, of course, existed. We read Plato talking about what music did and does. The Bible talks about mm -hmm. making a joyful noise, talks about <laughs> instruments and so forth. But there wasn't a way to write down music that made it survive. And obviously, there was no technology to record it. So it's very frustrating that really the history of literate, written down music is only about a thousand years old. Okay. Uh, and this um, evolved with the so-called Gregorian chant of the Roman Catholic Church. And for various, everything from religious reasons to political reasons um, and the spread of, of Christendom, the idea of writing down the melodies, of course, the words were written down that were being used in a service, but how do you write down the melodies? Mm -hmm. And that took quite some time to evolve. At first, it was literally just the pitches, just the, the melody, but no rhythm. And it's centuries and centuries to have this happen. And I guess we could 
just say this had implications that if the first music being written down was connected with the church and was sacred music, that was a division between the sacred and the secular, between mm-hmm. religious and everyday life. Now, of course, there was everyday music. People were singing, people were dancing. We begin to think of it if maybe if you're Monty Python movies or things <laughs> like this of the so-called troubadours or trouvères, the jugglers, you know, these medieval traveling musicians. But the fact is that uh, in these instances, we have infinitely more of the poetry, of the words, of the love songs and dance songs and texts than the melodies and the rhythms. So that maybe could be a division from the beginning of things mm-hmm. that are written down and things that existed, but we don't know about really, that's forgotten, that don't survive. Another way that maybe this was being framed, if we talk about classical and popular, was between high and low. Okay. Uh, so there was music that was very elevated, uh, complicated written for and by elites, social elites, religious elites, uh, literate people, and what would be considered a low style or a popular style that uh, was much simpler and connected more with daily life and so forth. So I think for quite some time, the division was more between high music and so-called low music Mm -hmm. than what we now think of as sort of concert orchestral opera, the classical world, and a more commercial, popular, mass culture, much, much larger audiences, and so forth. Okay, so the conclusion is that there was always sort of a division, but if there was always kind of like a division, was there was... A time where that was closer uh, than it's right now, for instance? I, I think so, because it didn't necessarily mean that people were exclusively doing one kind of music or the other. The separation now seems a little bit more extreme. Mm-hmm. And then some people so-called crossover, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the popular artist who sings an opera aria, and you have the opera singer who does some popular music, and you have collaborations coming together of a rock star being the narrator for Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, you know, Sting did that. Yeah, I think and David so Bowie did too. David Bowie did as well and so forth. So I think that some of this was much more natural and um, just happened in ways that uh, sometimes are surprising to us. So without going into a long history mm-hmm. of the medieval and Renaissance mass, but the mass, the words for the mass beginning with the so-called Kyrie and then Gloria, Credo. These these words were in almost every service. So they were set not just hundreds of times, but thousands and thousands of times. It's the same words that somebody in the 13th century would set as Beethoven uh, set, and as 20th century and composers to this day. So the mass of the Catholic Church are the most set words in the history of music. And what is the music like? Well, we think of it, this, you know, these are very elevated, religious, sacred 
texts, but it was oftentimes based on pre-existing melodies. And some of the most famous masses from the Renaissance were taking what we would think were pop tunes. So it'd be almost like, you know, taking the tune of a Beatles song that the Mm -hmm. entire world knows and using that as the musical material to set Kyrie eleison. (laughs) And that would strike us now as that that's really weird. I mean, that doesn't happen. And for the most part, it doesn't happen. But that was totally normal in the 15th, 16th century, which shows as well that if sort of all life is largely religious, that most people Mm -hmm. are, you know, connected with religion, it was predominant in Mm -hmm. in Christian Europe, then it maybe sort of makes sense that an everyday song could be brought into religious music, because all of life is in some ways Uh sacred. But that happened also with forms like symphonies uh, later on, correct? Right. I think it's more of a shock when you think this is secular music within sacred music. Mm -hmm. But if we fast forward hundreds of years, then it's not just some famous composers who took folk music, like Bela Bartok, the great Mm -hmm. Hungarian 20th century composer, or one of the most famous pieces at the beginning of the 20th century by Igor Stravinsky, The Rite of Spring. Mm -hmm. And they made use of folk songs that they either collected themselves by walking around, you know, villages or got from books, published books of folk songs, Russian folk songs, Lithuanian folk songs, and so forth. But there's a much larger history to this. Beethoven used folk songs. Uh, Mozart did. Most composers in one way or another, or popular styles. Johannes Brahms, a late 19th century great composer. We think of his great four symphonies and his concertos and so forth. Very elevated, magnificent music. Well, his real moneymakers were Hungarian dancers. (laughs) They're fantastic. And this even goes deeper. He wasn't Hungarian, for one thing. So this is interesting in a time of debates about cultural appropriation (laughs) and what you can use and and so forth. He was a North German who then moved to Vienna and spent the rest of his life there. Some of his best friends were Hungarian. And there was a popular style in Viennese cafes or in nearby Budapest of uh, playing so-called gypsy music or Hungarian-style music. It was very popular. You can hear it to this day. And he just loved it. So it's not just that he made these... um, They were originally written, actually, for piano four hands, and then he orchestrated them and others orchestrated them. But he oftentimes used the so-called Hungarian style in more elevated pieces. All of his four concertos at one point have a Hungarian section to them. And, you know, you sort of want to start to dance. They're fabulous. Mm -hmm. But it's showing, you know, within a concerto, the last movement of the violin concerto is suddenly Hungarian popular sort of style music. So I think you're absolutely right. What had been incorporating popular music into religious music in the Renaissance becomes oftentimes folk music in the classical, romantic, and 20th century. 
And then nowadays, the division that we have of classical and pop, what do you think that trigger that change or that huge drastic separation that we have right now? Because as you said, to nowadays it will be kind of like almost like a blasphemy to use a tune from David Bowie to write a mass. So what do you think that triggered that? Although Philip Glass wrote some symphonies, right? Yes. Based on yes. <laughs> the Low Symphony and, and yeah, yeah, so yeah, that, I know. Well, well, we should talk about Philip Glass and others later because they have some of these composers, so-called minimalist composers, mm -hmm. have been ones to break down some of these uh, barriers. He's very much a collaborative artist, including as a composer that he has his own group. You know, it's, yeah. he writes, of course, for orchestras, but the Philip Glass Ensemble is his own band. And at the beginning of <laughs> his career, that that was who was performing Philip Glass's music. Not, not many other people were. Then he begins to get commissions and big orchestras and opera companies and so forth. So I think the way that these sort of things spread and, and separate more may be connected with many larger issues of 19th and 20th century culture. So it's probably get best to get away from the high and low mm -hmm. and the elite and the popular. Um, but there are things that profoundly change in society, which is if in 1800, the mass of human beings in Europe and America and around the world were illiterate. Literally, they could not read a newspaper or a novel. And that changes profoundly over the course of the 19th century. And along with that comes you know, the so-called rise of the middle class, but more and more people that have access and interest uh, in culture. We're talking about with somebody like Haydn in the late uh, 18th century, that the person he worked for for most of his career, who was a prince, had his own orchestra and opera company. That's pretty nice. Uh, yeah. and, uh, the Vienna Philharmonic didn't exist uh, in Vienna at that time. But Prince Esterhazy had his own orchestra, and he hired Haydn as his staff member. Haydn didn't have any other job. That was his employer. And so all of this changes over the 19th century of musicians become more and more freelancers, or they have to find ways to make money. Some become music critics, some teach. Uh, it's uh, Some are Beethoven's quite lucky with very rich patrons that will just pay for him to write music, um, publications, and so forth. So I think one thing that happens that leads to more of the divide are broader cultural forces and that Everybody's always listening to music, but what happens when you have more and more people have more and more access to different kinds of music? In the 19th century, a sort of more elite audience usually played music themselves. Okay. In the middle class home, where now is the TV set and home entertainment center, was a piano. And more often than not, the people in the household could play the piano or the guitar or had a family string quartet. And a lot of music making took place in the home. The chance to hear, even if you lived in London or Paris, a Beethoven symphony was extraordinarily rare. And 
yet this music was incredibly well known because people played it at home in transcriptions. They'd play a version for piano. They'd play it as a string quartet. And publishers made a lot of money of every conceivable type of arrangement of music. I mean, the ridiculous things, you know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony for flute and zither. You'd say, <laughs> wow, that's, but yes, that's what, you know, people would do this at home. And so then what eventually happens and the divides become greater, I think, in the 20th century is uh, more and more of a commercial mass culture Mm -hmm. and the emergence of recordings and the decline of musical literacy of people playing music themselves. They play music by pushing a button and commercial forces begin to take over more and more of the mass distribution of rock stars and pop stars. I mean, it could be Bing Crosby or Mm -hmm. Chuck Berry or Elvis or the Beatles or Beyonce, right? Or Lady Gaga at the inauguration. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, but these begin to, we're we're talking about uh, audiences that are in the millions and millions of people, right? Mm -hmm. Not, the 1,200 people that could fit in a concert hall in Vienna when Brahms conducted a symphony. I I think we have to be very careful of not thinking that things are getting better or worse. I think the important thing is to understand that they're changing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to think what was happening in 1200 between the sacred and the secular, the high and the low, and you know what's happening in our time and what happened in between. I mean, there's some things I guess we would say that are progressive forces that we are glad happened. We're glad mm-hmm. that that more and more people can read and are healthy and you know these broader possibilities. But to the classical world right now related to YouTube and things like this more people will see a broadcast, you know, live from the Metropolitan Opera of a Mozart opera than saw every Mozart opera live in Mozart's entire lifetime in that one performance. So, you know, the dissemination, the spread, the amount of the audience, even for, you know, Mozart and Beethoven is far, far greater now. It's all over the world. Mm -hmm. It sometimes just amazes me when I look at a YouTube clip and I see that this has a million hits to it. You know, I mean, that's an audience that, you know, is, is unimaginable in the 19th century. And I would like to ask you something. The concept of culture and arts and entertainment, when that started... It's a much broader question in part because it goes well beyond music mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. So, you know, the the popularity of Shakespeare, for example, uh, well, in different centuries and in different places as really being popular and that you could present uh, Shakespeare plays. Now, maybe they were abridged in certain, cut down in some ways. Maybe some of the language was changed and so forth. But as you know, I mean, some Shakespeare plays are enormously funny. 
some are, you know, beyond <laughs> moving of, of, you know, the story of Romeo and Juliet that uh, have a long history of this being really popular entertainment and of touring groups that would be presenting Shakespeare. Not that you were going to see something that was very, very elevated, but this is a great show. And, you know, maybe we get some of that within the world of movies versus films or something, Uh right? That, you know, so are we going to think that all the movie world is uh, just all a commercial type of venture or now have, you know, really great movies become the new type of novel or, you know, expansive opera of uh, the 19th century, you know, I think a good case can be made that, uh, you know, great, great films are magnificent works of art and entertaining mm-hmm. and so forth in a way that uh, would be comparable to the 19th century novel. And the 19th century novel, many of them, like Charles Dickens, that would be serialized, right? We're keeping up with, uh, you know, whatever the series, Downtown Abbey, Bridgerton, <laughs> uh, you know, The Crown, and, you know, what's coming out? Well, the next installment of the Dickens novel would be appearing in these magazines and was was very, very popular and so forth. So, I think, you know, there's a lot of the boundaries that uh, are partly artificial and have much more context and and history to them. Within music, another thing that complicates things, I would say, in the 20th century, and this is, I'll be maybe more opinionated Mm -hmm. than... uh, 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 standard uh, professor line uh, historian would be. But uh, I think there was a very wrong track that musical modernism took with many composers. Uh, this is the legacy of Arnold Schoenberg and of others of writing music that pretty much nobody wanted to hear and remained very prestigious, very funded, very uh, praised by critics and put into the history books, while at the same time, composers like Rachmaninoff or Aaron Copland or Bernstein and so forth were writing music that uh, audiences did want to hear and that was continuing a sort of romantic tradition. But this high modernist beginning with Schoenberg and Stockhausen and Boulez and so forth, is uh, is a complicated story of the 20th century that uh, I, I think was sort of a false direction. And not much of it has survived in the repertory. Uh, it's not heard very often, even though these names sort of became enshrined in a certain way. And so what I think was interesting was towards the end of uh, the 20th century, influenced in large part by rock and by jazz, there was a return to tonality, to melody, to rhythm, uh, and so forth. Very important with this was uh, the minimalist composers like Philip Glass and Steve Reich and John Adams that uh, brought back as well the composer as performer and relating to their audience and caring about their audience mm-hmm. and audiences that wanted to hear 
this music, and that in many ways did cross over, quite literally, of uh, performing in rock clubs and alternative venues. Uh, at first, before Carnegie Hall and the Metropolitan Opera realized they better be performing that music that people want to hear rather than uh, Pierre Boulez. So that just complicated the story even <laughs> more in sort of the history of these legendary composers and what happens in the 20th century. And I would say that in the more recent history, meaning the past 25 or more years, a lot of these threads have merged back together again of not only more popular traditions of what uh, uh, came out of rock and of jazz, but of world music and of, you know, it can be from Brazil, it mm -hmm. can be from China, it can be you look what somebody like Tan Dun does, and, you know, the, the merger of East and West uh, of popular and classical tradition and uh, this is some of the most fruitful paths, I think, of, of our time that results in pieces that uh, performers want to perform, uh, audiences want to hear, and uh, that, that truly continue the history of, uh, of the classical tradition, reinventing itself for our time. Uh, as I said, I don't want to tell a story that it's, you know, everything's getting better or everything's uh -huh. getting worse. Everything is changing all the time with all the positive things that come from it and the negative things. I am thrilled that so many people can hear the entire history of Western music through a few clicks. And if you're a musician, you can probably bring up the score within a few clicks. And I mean, the access to all of this is just simply uh, extraordinary. We're not only missing during the pandemic being in real time and real concert halls and hearing live music, but a lot of these things are threatened in general, as we know, yeah. even before the pandemic. And so how do we negotiate this? How do we save symphony orchestras and opera companies and chamber music? And uh, how do we engage younger audiences and all these questions that uh, you know greatly affect the future of what we think of as this classical tradition but i i don't want to be doom and gloom that it's you know it's all bad it's all you know it all as i said i don't want to hear the premiere performance of beethoven's <laughs> symphony because i'm sure it was yes. totally miserable and now you know the, the rite of spring supposedly in 1913 in paris had something like a hundred rehearsals because this piece was so difficult, so unusual. The musicians were so unused to the way that it was writing of the meter changing sometimes every measure. And a great conductor, Pierre Monteux, was doing this. Um, and now a conservatory orchestra can pull together a performance of the Rite of Spring in three or four rehearsals. You know, 19-year-olds playing it. And it'll probably sound better than what happened in 1913. So, how, you know, how does that work of training and of the of familiarity with different styles and openness to the new and uh, many, many issues as well relating to how things change over time? Yeah, recently, I not, not really re recently, but I think it was two years ago, 
when uh, John Adams did the premiere of the um, Philip Glass' last uh, Bowie symphony. Mm -hmm. Like, I was so pleased to see how many young people were in that performance. And was really, really remarkable. I don't know if it was because of the crossover of David Bowie and uh, Philip Glass. And it was packed. It was really packed. And I was really pleased to see that. You know, so I think I do agree with you that uh, things are changing and we have to embrace that. And it's, you know, good music good music, period. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. We will continue this conversation next episode where we will talk about the first rock stars, how the concerts were structured, the role of critics, and what was the social media at that time. Don't forget to subscribe to Beethoven Was a Rockstar and for more information, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channel. See you next time. Music